the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast camped squarely at the crossroads of geek culture and Christian faith. I'm James, and as always, my good friends Mike and Brian are hanging out with me. Mike, how's it going, my man? I am doing really well, and I'm actually really, really surprised that my voice does not sound like a chain smoker at age 157. Um, cause I have just spent, yeah, because chain smokers make it to 157. <laughs> They're well preserved internally like a mummy. So <laughs> the tar mummy of tobacco Kings. Okay. That's what the tar mummy of Marlboro. Um, yeah, I have spent the last two days at PAX East, so I've been shouting over a condom through a mask and still able to speak today, so I am thrilled. Very cool. I can't wait to hear the PAX report. Uh, how about you, Brian? I've been doing very well lately. Glad to hear it. Not for any particular reason, just very well in general. Just life is good. Glad to hear it. Yes. Same here. Um, for the most part, life is better now. Life is was <laughs> not great a uh, little less than a month ago. You guys already know this, but I went for two years or however long this whole COVID-19 has gone on, got the vaccinations, wore the masks, was very careful, didn't get anything. Then I got it last December, and then I got it again at the beginning of March. So nothing for years, and then twice in less than three months, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah. it stinks. And most times I think, you know what, hey, stuff like this happens. It's all right. But this time it did make me miss Gulf Wars this year, which Joy and I had planned on going to. And that's uh, a hit. I, that's it was a, a big hit. Um, but they say that you can still be contagious up to 10 days from counting from the day I got it. That would have put me on like the Tuesday, right in the middle of week of Gulf Wars. I thought, no, I, I can't. That's out for me. That's yeah. thankfully this time. Symptoms weren't nearly as bad as the first time. Honestly, I thought all I had was strep throat or a bad case of the flu. So I went to only. A, oh, oh, yeah, oh. only. <laughs> those are just those are just no big deal. It's, I can mow the lawn with those. No worries. No, it's just pneumonia. I'll be yeah. fine. It's called walking pneumonia for a reason. I can still get around. It's just a lacerated leg and a severed head. Mm-hmm. I, I I can still hop off for a walk. <laughs> to quote the classics, "Tis but a flesh wound." It's just skeletal inversion, that's all. That's right. <laughs> just a sucking chest wound. Give me a Band-Aid and I shall be fine. So I went to a local med clinic. These days, they give you two tests and it covers everything. One for strep, one for flu, RSV, COVID. And strep test came back negative. I'm like, all right, fine. I'm expecting the flu. Like 45 minutes later, I get the email. Big red letters. SARS COVID positive. Well, Stink. <laughs> that rearranges my entire month. So can I be around people? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fine. It's fine. Much better now. Symptoms, like I said, were not nearly as bad. And I didn't lose my sense of taste, but it was kind of muted. I desired anything salty. It's just what I was needing at that time. And I am not going to admit how many cans of Pringles I went through because I don't need that kind of judgment <laughs> in my life. 
I mean, I just can't believe that James let loose that he hadn't lost his sense of taste and, like, neither of us picked up for the easy joke there. I mean, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> boys, proud of us. Get on the ball. Well, I'm looking at his waveform, and it's pretty solid for about 30 seconds after he said that. There was no room to get a word in. <laughs> it's like he was- knew something was coming. I know who I'm dealing with. Really, has James being in the middle of something ever really stopped me? (laughs) (laughs) Good point. But enough about my aches and pains. Let's head to Geek Out. I'll keep the aches and pains going and I will go first. (laughs) So we've reached the time of year again where it seems that more sci-fi shows are on streaming that I never thought would ever be possible. The main two right now as of the time of recording this podcast, are the latest season of The Mandalorian and Picard. Once again, if you had told, like, 12-year-old James that one day there's going to be a Star Wars TV show and a Star Trek TV show on at the same time, I just would have been giddy with excitement. <laughs> Wait, That's not the same. Is, it, is this a crossover? Yeah, seriously, yeah. Is it the Millennium Falcon versus the Enterprise? Oh, we're not going to go down no, that no, 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 no. Everyone forget I said that. Anyway... We usually don't do bleeps, so we might make an exception here. (laughs) Uh, Season three of The Mandalorian has been very enjoyable. Pretty much every season has been solid. Sometimes it strays into really good, sometimes kind of mediocre, but overall it's been a decent show. They've delved more into the history of the sect or uh, group that The Mandalorian belongs to. We see a bit of the actual planet Mandalore. Katie Sackhoff returns as the character Bo-Katan, whose origins were in the Clone Wars cartoon. And no one was sad. No one was (laughs) sad at all. She nails it. And uh, Grogu continues to be absolutely adorable. That will never change. So yeah, great show that I've enjoyed every week. I'm Uh, really curious where they're going with this random episode of Andor that they stuck in the middle of it. Yeah, seriously. But then again, they've been doing that because I I, I kind of waited my way through the book of Boba Fett. And it should be like the pamphlet of Boba Fett because a lot of it was Mandalorian season 2.5. I really kind of need to dial back here because I've only seen two episodes of the new season. Uh, They put Andor in it? No, there's there's one episode that's like suddenly this turned into this spy intrigue kind of thing like yep, what does this have to do with anything else yeah they brought back a tertiary character from the first season and it just went down this rabbit hole i figure they're gonna bring the cloner back at some point that's who i'm talking about okay so at least i win a point for that yes, actually yes. no my friend brent brent you are right they're doing more with that Three years ago, you were right. You win. <laughs> Are you happy now? So, yeah. This season of Picard is much improved over the last. Season one was pretty good. Uh, season two, not as great as I was hoping it would be, even though it had John Delancey returning as Q. Best moments of the season were basically the moments with Q. And <laughs> that's great and also unfortunate. Mm. John Delancey just can't help being a delight on screen. But that's, he that's just me. absolutely is. And he and Picard had some moments in the last episode that almost made me forgive the sins of the entire season. <laughs> I said almost. Almost. That one episode just cannot be forgiven. Let's not talk about that. Yeah. 
<laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, but I don't feel the need to press play and find out. Let's not even delve into it right now. So this third season, they are finally giving the fans basically what we've been wanting since a Picard series was announced. They're bringing back all the original crew members from the next generation. Of course, there is some Federation-spanning plot that falls in Picard's lap. There's intrigue, there's fighting, characters are brought back one or two at a time. It's been pretty enjoyable. So many people have been blaming Picard for like, you know, you're putting yourself and these people in danger. To be fair, I've watched this show. A lot of this just kind of falls in his lap. It's not really the dude's fault. <laughs> he spent seven seasons putting his crew in danger. Why, why, why would that change now? <laughs> but, um... Uh... Yeah, of the three seasons, I've enjoyed this one the most, and I can't wait to see how they wrap it up. One of the best things, and this is absolutely played for nostalgia, and I don't care because I'm enjoying it. I know what they're doing, and I'm, I'm, I'm giving into it. But all of the Easter eggs and all of the callbacks that have been in every single episode, it's, it's been fun to look out for them and just remember and have memories. And Do they in any way make up for Guinan just not remembering that she'd already met Picard? I'm kind of putting that along with those things that I'm just happy you're not thinking about. Because, <laughs> I mean, really, if we're going to spend that much time nitpicking season two, we're going to be here a long, long time. <laughs> Here's my question. Do I have to watch season two or can I on a whim just start season three and be pretty much good? Well, there's a specific episode of season two that you absolutely must watch. And Brian and I will tell you which one that is off of the show. I feel like you're setting me up for... for... What? Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> no. Like no. Almost like we've been friends. I for... would... Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm absolutely yeah. doing that. I yes. I just wanted to make sure. Just, I, that's fine. I just... <laughs> <laughs> but moving on from The Mandalorian and Picard, I'll spend the rest of my geek out talking about an event that I have been looking forward to for the past year, and that is Texas Blade Show. I'd missed Gulf Wars, but thankfully, I recovered more than enough to be able to make it to a Texas Blade Show, which happened this past March. My father and I went. We had an absolutely fantastic time. Now, I had a shopping list of knives that I was hoping to get. They had a lot more of the bigger name uh, knife makers there, like uh, Rick Hinderer, Olamic, and uh, not a huge knife maker, but one who is very well known, makes great knives, named... Uh, Chavez Redencion. My shopping list is like one, two, three, four, five, six, se seven knives. Wasn't going to buy them all because that just would be absurd. And I would not be able to come home afterwards if I bought all of them. But I ended up buying mostly very different knives than I thought that I was going to get. My dad and I did go on Saturday, which was day two. So a lot of the things that I was hoping to find were just not there. They'd already been bought and that's fine because that led me to look around more. First knife I bought was from the company Smoky Mountain Knife Works. And they're an online retailer. And they also have a huge, huge shop in Tennessee. I mean, even I know that name. So that's saying something. That's at least a couple of stories tall. So they had a big booth there. And I love it when my interests intersect. The knife I bought is from the company Microtech. Microtech makes really high-quality knives, and they make a lot of out-the-front automatic knives. And I bought the Microtech Exoset, 
the version I got is called The Sand Trooper. <laughs> I really feel like this is another title of an anime, and I just don't know what to do with it. <laughs> it is actually one of their out-the-front California legal blade, because the blade is actually less than two inches long. Microtech was able to get a license from Disney to make Star Wars-themed versions of their knives. The Bounty Hunter version, which has the colors from Boba Fett, uh, all-white Stormtrooper editions, black with blue or green blades for Jedi, and minus the Sand Trooper. It's like, I can't believe that a Disney officially licensed knife is the same company that sent those S&P letters to Alex Hirsch over, over Gravity Falls. Like, it just feels like <laughs> this can't exist in the same universe. <laughs> I think it probably all comes down to how much money are they going to make from it? Yeah. <laughs> As I said to the lady at the counter, that Microtech got the license from Disney to put out these Star Wars themed knives. Because, you know, Disney just needs more money. <laughs> but as you can see on the clip, they've got the Imperial uh, symbol on the uh, on the belt clip, which just kind of makes it so cool. I mean, although the thing is, I don't know that the Star Wars fandom right now, the thing that they need is more knives, because I just feel like that might not go well. <laughs> Those are beautiful knives, though. I got to say, that's that is quite a thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was the first knife I bought. And it's one I've been looking for for a while because... Besides the fact that it is a Star Wars themed, I liked the the rugged and distressed look of it. That appealed to me. Plus, it's a handy little knife to just be able to carry in the pocket or to double as a clip. But moving on from there, uh, I hit up some other booths. Like I said, I didn't find what I was hoping to get, what I hoped would be there, because most of it was probably gone on the first day. But Saturday was a little bit of a slower day crowd-wise. Still very busy, but we were able to make our way around a little easier. I went and hit up a booth from a company called QSB who makes some of the coolest named knives that I think they're like most well uh, known model is called the penguin. And I picked one up called the platypus. It's got a nice uh, swept blade kind of reverse tanto. And uh, I'm describing all these over a podcast, but I'll include pictures on the Facebook page <laughs> as well. Also, there was a company they just started making knives a few years ago. It's called NAFS, K-N-A-F-S. Uh, they worked with a well-known personality named Ben Peterson to make a knife called the Lander. Now, it's not a huge knife. It's actually a very simple knife. But what's interesting about it is that this knife was made so that people can customize it because that's something that knife owners like to do. We like to take the knives, get new custom scales for it, New belt clips, liners, screws, knife beads, all sorts of different things. It's just something else to accessorize. But they made this knife so that the knife scales themselves can be taken off and replaced without taking the knife apart. Oh, that's a thing. What's also cool is that if you go to their website, they have the dimensions and also CAD file for the scales available for free that you can download to begin like 3D printing or milling your own scales. Hmm. They're very much like, hey, take this, go make cool stuff. That's what we want you to do. That's the whole purpose of this knife. So I got it. It's a nice just little pocket knife. I call it a Sunday morning knife. It's small. It fits in the pocket. Easy. Very low profile. It's one I could take to church and no one's going to notice it. 
Like pretty soon they're going to get comments from pictures posted on their website. Like, sir, when we said customize this, we did not mean stick it on the end of a mop. <laughs> and then take it into a food production plant. <laughs> Brian's got it. <laughs> I got that. I understood that joke. <laughs> James, you need to listen to that episode you just posted a few I, days I, ago. <laughs> I really do. I really, really do. Although my wife and I have been listening to the latest episode of the Retro Rewind podcast because they have been reviewing Anne of Green Gables, which Joy saw and was just happy and squealed with delight. There's our obligatory reference for the episode. <laughs> they got uh, a killer movie... guest on that one, too. I need to take a listen to that. Yeah. Uh, Shanine from First Geek 411 was on there, and great as always. But finally, as I was looking around, uh, and the Blade Show, they've got larger knife companies and distributors there, but they also have uh, hundreds of tables of local knife makers who are there showing and selling their wares. Uh, some of them are entered into contests, but there was one gentleman off to the side who I had seen his knives on a couple of different YouTube channels that I follow. His name is Jonathan McNeves, and get a table there. And so as soon as I saw him, I was like, I've got to go see his stuff. The moment I did, I found my big purchase of the day. He has a line called the PM2, and he had some there that were push-button automatic blades. I mean, you push the button, it snaps out. They had this one in a beautiful green Cerakoted color with kind of coyote brown screws and hardware. It's kind of got a grenade frag pattern milled into it and i just knew that's it i am walking away with this knife i'm just impressed that coyote brown is a color that is in your crayon box in your brain because i <laughs> i don't have that crayon <laughs> well apparently your parents didn't buy you the big pack with the sharpener at the back i mean i mean why do you shame me in front of our listeners james <laughs> I've carried the others around from time to time, but for the most part, this is the one that's been living in my pocket. It fits my hand perfectly. It locks in there. I've fallen in love with it. So, uh, a great day overall and over way too quickly. And, uh, I'll be looking forward to it next year. And that will wrap it up for me. Uh, who is next? I guess that would be me. I don't have a con report, so I'm going to keep mine short. Foremost on my mind lately has been the, uh, tales from the loop. We've been recording for podcast format that we're going to be releasing like in this uh, stream, not like as a Geek at Arms show. I don't know exactly how we're going to brand it, <laughs> but I'm finally done editing the entire first season of that, 17 episodes. And That's I wanted awesome. to get the whole thing done before I started releasing because I know myself and I would be very frustrated if I had gotten like 15 episodes done and then gotten bored and then it never finished. And I would hate myself. So it's like done. Firefly. The show gets canceled right when it's getting good. <laughs> right. I did not want to be Firefly. Uh, but I, I wrapped up the editing on the last episode of that one uh, just this week. And I started playing with uh, Mid Journey, which is the second item on my geek out list. Mid Journey is one of those artificial intelligence image generators. Um, and it does a pretty good job. I'm not, I still haven't quite worked out in my brain how I feel about the ethics of the 
AI generation because it is completely reliant on its inputs, which is every image we can get our hands on on the internet, regardless of whether it's under copyright or not. Uh, so, you know, it's producing stuff that is not really 100% ethically sourced. Now I make it sound like a GMO product or something. <laughs> <laughs> also a reference to our previous episode on the Geek right. Supply. But I, I burned through my, uh, it gives you like 20 minutes worth of processor time for free. Um, it, it works as a, a Discord bot. So you invite it into a Discord channel and then you give it prompts and it generates the images. And you get 20 minutes for free. And I burned through that in one evening. So I'm like, okay, I'll spend eight bucks for a month or two for more processing, processing time. And I have burned all of my credits from my first month this weekend. <laughs> uh, and I'm still not sure if I'm actually going to use any of this imagery for anything, but it's, it's a lot of fun to play with. Um, I did manage to get a really good portrait of one character a couple of passable portraits of some other characters and a really freaking scary portrait of a third. <laughs> but it's been, it's, it, it has been fun to play with and I'm going to keep, keep poking at it and try to work out what I feel about the, uh, the ethics of the thing. And that's everything I've got for geek out. So I'm going to pass it on to Mike. Well, as I may have been mentioning to you off the mics, I have been at PAX East and it has been uh, fantastic. Uh, this time around on Saturday, I went with my eldest and uh, she decided to go last year. She went cosplaying as kind of a relatively, my, uh, relatively less recognized character. Like the people who got it, got it this year. She cosplayed as flick from animal crossing and just really nailed it without being an actual anthropomorphic chameleon. Like there was just enough evoking the character that it was, okay, yes, this is exactly who you are. Um, and even got the, since it was, is all masked, uh, got the red KN95 masks that kind of have that snout like shape and glued like a nose horn onto it. And so it really integrated the mask into the whole, into the whole, uh, into the whole vibe. And it was really interesting watching people interact with her. Cause I'd never been with somebody who's, who's cosplaying before such a recognized character and just watching, this is my kiddo who is, you know, there's some struggles with social awkwardness just to have all of this positive vibe with all of these people It's really kind of a thing to see. And, uh, we got to, we got to, we got to play some really interesting games, uh, from tabletop. We took, uh, we took home my little Everdale, uh, Everdale is, is kind of a larger, more complex, um, resource management and worker placement game. And they, they pitched it as, well, this is Everdale for children or your non-gamer friends. And I'm like, Sir, this is a game. <laughs> this, is, this isn't like highly complex, but I mean, it's got enough meat to it. This isn't, you know, I am a gamer <laughs> and, and I would have fun with this. And I'm like, all right, all right. Sales is one thing. He's trying to figure out how to, how to pitch this to somebody, somebody else. But sometimes you want a heavy, heavy game. And sometimes you want something light to medium weight. And this is a really beautiful 
light to medium weight, worker placement, resource management, try to use resource uh, resources to purchase cards that will either give you a one-time bonus or give ongoing effects. And the great thing about this is that it happens over a number of days and enough phases of the moon. So basically there is a keep it moving and this game will end mechanic. And so you know that you are getting 12 turns. That's it. And you have completed what you have completed and you tally your victory points from there. And I do kind of like those games that have a set determined terminus. And so this is like, this has got a niche in my game cabinet. So, so we're, we're picking this up and we don't want to play Agricola that night, but we want to play something that has some overlap. On the video game side, I went over to Finji's booth and Finji has done A Night in the Woods. They've done Tunic, which I could rave about for 87 episodes, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> and so I sat down, talked with the devs, had a great time and demoed uh, demoed Outland. And Outland is a turn-based strategy that has survival elements. There's this post-alien invasion apocalypse. Um, and what you're trying to do is gather resources at each stage to just fuel up your car, keep yourself moving, to take new people in your party, or <laughs> sometimes people don't make it out of your party. And you can even get dogs to help your team. And you can have a you, you have a set limit to the number of people who can fit in your car. But it's it's turn-based. So there's only so much you can do in any, any given turn and only so many resources you can carry. So you can carry like two items at a time because you have, um, fortunately, two hands. Uh, so it's it's really limited in what you can do with each scene which does make it pretty suspenseful and interesting. And if you start a second game, you can play as all dogs. And that is just amazing. <laughs> because as I mentioned, you are driving across country and the dogs are fueling up the car. And yes, the dogs are driving. <laughs> well, that one they, sounds right up my alley. I'm going to look into that one. Yeah, same here. Like, yeah, they did not even change the art style on the dogs. They're like, nope, we got dogs in game. <laughs> now Fido is going driving. I'm picturing one dog driving and the other three dogs, heads out the windows, mouths open, tongues lashing out. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm going to be imagining that during those scenes, too. Uh, the graphics are pretty slim. This is a, like, this is not a AAA mm -hmm. title. I don't go to packs for the AAA titles. I'm going... I, I I like the indie stuff generally. Uh, so set your expectations. This is not going to be, you're not going to be taxing your processor on this one. It's just good, clean fun. Uh, there are a number of things here that I'd like to talk about, but I'm probably going to put them into uh, into a blog post. And because I've mentioned a blog post on the air, we're going to honor <laughs> the tradition of that never actually materializing. <laughs> anyway. Um, hides haunt, <laughs> hides haunt and seek. <laughs> I'm so tired. I'm not going to make it through this episode. Um, you might not make it through this title. I... <laughs> okay. All right. Here we go for real. Hides haunt and seek <laughs> is a game that's still in development. So there's a lot that could change, but this thing shows so much promise. It has something really novel that it's bringing to the table. 
Have either of you been on Disney's Haunted Mansion ride? Mm-hmm. I have not. Okay, well, we've got a little bit of time. Hop on a plane and do that, because it's really going to help for like the next two minutes. I'm just going to go ahead and buy myself a ticket right now. I'll explain to Joy, like, where are you? Oh, I'm at Disneyland. I've got to go ride Haunted Mansion. Why are you? Oh, it's for the podcast here. It's fine. Mike told me to. Yeah, we could, <laughs> we could expense this one. <laughs> Ticket Arms has no revenue. Shh, 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 shh. Details, details. Luigi's Haunted Mansion, though, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're familiar with. Yes. Okay. So there's kind of a crossover between these sort of concepts. And... In this game, you're playing one of two types of character. You're playing the singular, only one, paranormal investigator, which they call a seeker. Seeker has a flashlight, and you're roaming around the mansion in this wonderful Victorian mansion looking for ghosts. The other players are ghosts. Surprise, surprise. The ghosts are doing a few different things. Uh, The ghosts are... Uh, in an initial setup phase, they're hiding an item of significance. The seeker is going to be, during the second phase, looking for that item of significance so that they can increase their own power and they can decrease uh, the effectiveness of what the ghosts are doing. The ghosts are trying to scare the seeker. And so they're inhabiting objects and making them move and they're they're making items levitate and they're making things go go bump in, in the night, trying to be just out of view of the flashlight. Because the more you spook the seeker, they drop fear, basically. Like it, there's fear points that you're sitting around and trying to gather. The thing is, you've got to stay out of the view of that flashlight because that flashlight can capture you. And that flashlight, once you once you get drained, you're helping the seeker's effectiveness in finding your item of power or your item of significance. And it's basically shifting the balance between who has more power during the during the end game. If you manage to to collect enough of the fear and increase the team, and I love this, the team's <laughs> team spirit, um, because you're ghosts. <laughs> Uh, then you get to introduce a, you know, a big scary, a big bad into the haunt. Third phase, the haunt begins. If, if the scary clown has appeared from what I hear, it's really hard for the seeker to win. And if, if not, then you're trying to, as the ghosts perform a quote unquote ritual and try to move furniture into certain places that will trigger end game while the seeker is trying to capture you and in end game once you're captured you don't you don't respawn you're just captured for good and uh one of the things that makes this so novel is that the seeker has like a first person shooter perspective and the ghosts have a top down perspective and so okay. your experiences are really very different but it's collectively making a great experience like we it was a hard fight when we were when we were demoing and after i lost uh cedra and i lost to the seeker but afterwards it was like you know the it was cheers and fist bumps like good you know good solid game because it was it was great competition uh so i really want to see what this is doing as it moves into development and the last game that really caught my attention uh, was Aaron's Gift, 
And this thing is pre-alpha. And that's one of the great things of going to these cons is you can still go and see things when they're still in development and sometimes a couple of years down the line, see what it's become. It's a super indie production, self-funded. And the thing that grabbed me is just the art style, really. I mean, it feels like it's, I mean, it can't be, but it feels like it's hand-painted and it's got these really thick outlines and and thick texture lines that just made it something to behold. Uh, if they get their story together, because it's, as I said, it's pre-alpha, so it's more or less exploring the universe. If the story is as good as as the art style that they have coming into this, it's, it's going to be something. Um, but it's also fun to kind of help these people out by finding what's the limits of the game. And sometimes those those borders that they had made are a little bit more broken. And sometimes if you roll just right, you can roll into into places that you should not be. And I got to walk up a tree while the dev was like, oh, no, my baby. Why are you breaking my poor, poor baby? No, but I was talking with them. They're really cool. And they're saying, like, yes, this is really hard to watch, but it's also super good to know what these bugs are when you're when you're testing it in ways that we we hadn't thought to to test at this stage like it's not it's not gone to um it, it it's not gone through through even beta testing yet it's pre-alpha so they were grateful and emotionally invested in in all the brokenness but it's i think it's going to be something cool Testing the game in ways the developers never, never thought of before. I feel like that should be on your business card, Mike. <laughs> I had a friend who had that job. I don't want to put that on my business card. I like to play games, and sometimes when it's fun to break them. Uh, a friend of mine was actually testing a game, and it hit an error that physically damaged the hard drive. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was bad. And they said to the to the manager like uh okay so my pc's broken what do i what do i do and the manager's like is that repeatable and then <laughs> when they were out of pcs they all went home <laughs> do you want me to break another one uh, yeah okay. seriously uh, that'd have to be a terribly difficult bug to find if you have to replace a hard drive after mm -hmm. every time you activate it I, I'm assuming this was this was pre SSD days, so yeah. Here's the question: Will that bug destroy an SSD? Well, there's only one way to find out. Let's get an SSD and wreck it. Yeah, packs. Every packs is different. Um, we're you know we're still seeing what things look like in a in a COVID world, but it it feels like some more of the vibe is back. Yeah, it's just a great experience, and I'm looking forward to next year too. From the pictures I saw online, some great cosplay as always. And you, good sir, were rocking an excellent t-shirt. Uh, <laughs> thank you. I had a friend make me a t-shirt. Uh, it was, in fact, a Geek at Arms t-shirt. So all of our listeners <laughs> could... No, no, that's not why I was wearing the t-shirt. Um, because I, like, I know the demographics of how many, how many of our listeners are in Boston. But I did at least get one dice maker to, to look at me and say... That's a really cool t-shirt. And I said, well, thank you. Here is a matching business card. 
And she said, we talked last year, didn't we? I said, yo, you recognized me. And so we chatted it up again because, I mean, because these people are wonderful. I mean, I, the con social relationships are a really big draw. Mm -hmm. So it's absolutely, yeah, it's fun to hang out with like-minded people. Whether it's about games, knives, it's all relative. I really wanted something snappy, but I'm just drawing a blank. That's I, I am sad. <laughs> That's all right. I'm sure your cutting edge wit will come back soon. Oh, you have to show me up again and shame me in front of the listeners. Why? So that wraps up my geek out. Uh, what are we doing for Film Club? What was suggested for our next series was a surprise, a pleasant surprise, and we're actually going to be doing a Western series. The first movie, the 2003 Kevin Costner directed and starring a movie, Open Range. So, why have we chosen this film, gentlemen? I I actually think that there's a larger question going on here. I mean, because I think why this film is not only the question that we usually ask. I was asking that question when I was watching it. Like I, I don't usually watch Westerns and I never had any prior contact with this film. And I'm looking, this came out in 2003. Like there was, there was a big push for Westerns in the 1990s. I think that was probably some sort of nostalgia driven at the time. And I was like, I, I, I'm not complaining, but how'd this film get made? How'd it get, how'd it get greenlit? Like what, what else is going on at this time is this is like, there's a lot of effects heavy movies that are inspired by the matrix trilogy. Bullet time is how you tell action stories. And instead with Mm -hmm. this, this film, it was the exact opposite. It was kind of a, well, it's storytelling was at a mosey and it's, it's action (laughs) sequences were in these wide shots and there wasn't the there wasn't the slow down and drill in from the the bullets perspective (laughs) um Mm -hmm. so it's really kind of a shift from what was being from what was popular at the time this very much was a a passion project for kevin costner and some of the other producers uh some of who pooled their own money together to make up half of the money to produce this film. I'll explain some of it. We never really ever have stopped seeing Westerns. They come out at a trickle ever since the seventies. There was a glut of them in the nineties and they were all Mm -hmm. kind of not really very Western-y. Action adventure movies with a Western theme. Yeah. This one is very much a, a throwback to the classic Western genre. And it's, Mm -hmm. It's twisting a few things, a few of the tropes, and it's doing some interesting things. But I think it's really a a movie for the people who are just like, oh, gosh, I'm sick of the things that Hollywood is doing right now. This, this is a movie for my dad. It's like somebody who, who really loves the Western genre and has had not had anything made for him in a while. Okay. Well, then this is going to be a thing for both of you. Since I am not familiar with Westerns as a genre, I have seen a handful of Westerns in my life. And so when you say those common tropes, unless it's appeared in Sparks, Nevada, Marshall on Mars, I might not recognize <laughs> them or their twists. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be relying gotcha. on you to, to let me know what's what here. Well, 
Let's go ahead and just jump right into that because I think a discussion of the genre is a is a mm-hmm. good place to start since we are starting a new film club trilogy. There's some there's something that goes on in in westerns and in the samurai movies that inspired a lot of them where your protagonist is somebody who lives outside of civilization. And the reason he does so is because he's a man of violence. He's he doesn't have the ability to live in the town because he's always going to be bringing blood and death with him. And we see this very clearly with Costner's character. I mean, he can't even, he can't even take a nap in uh, Sue's living room or Anne's living room. Sorry. Is it Sue? Anne? It is Sue. Annette Benning is the name of the actress who plays Sue. <laughs> okay, so, notes. so you are relying on the guy that always messes up the names. <laughs> For the right name. Right. That was probably a bad idea. Yes. <laughs> anyway. Of course, that's how I got to. <laughs> oh, so he can't it's... even take a, a nap without wrecking her tea set. The, the violence is inherent in his character. And at the end of every Western, the, this, this hero has saved the town. He's put down the bad guy. He has to leave because... His violence cannot coexist with the civilization. And I was initially confused in this particular movie because that didn't seem to be what was happening, at least at the beginning, because it was framed very much that the uh, the free grazers are the ones who are the ideal. We're not looking at the town as the ideal, as we do in most Westerns. And so I was a little bit out of sorts. I'm like, ooh, what are they doing with this movie? But then it turned into that mm-hmm. same the same genre trope by the end of the movie. I found it to be an interesting thing that, I mean, that does seem true to my experience of this film, that we have this man of violence who, who can't come back to the town because he's going to bring that violence with him. And yet he's going to get married to Sue at the end of the movie (laughs) and settle down. I mean, I feel like there's a lot to unpack here. Mm Mm-hmm. That actually struck me as a little bit strange because I'm like, in terms of storytelling tropes, what I really thought should have happened was she actually has to go with him to to take the civilization out onto the prairie with him so that he can have a transformative event out there by himself so that he can come back in. But that's not what they did. And I thought, uh, I think you kind of cheated the the story a little bit there. I see what you're talking about, but I kind of viewed it as that he went through the pacing of this movie is one thing. And a lot of it is, as you said, Mike slow, it has two speeds until the end, slow and mosey. <laughs> and I kind of saw a transformation <laughs> happen to him as the movie progressed, as he was interacting with these townspeople at first, they meet the uh, the gentleman who runs the stagecoach, who is really friendly to them, even gives them a warning, the first one to fight by their side. The gentleman whose dog he saves introduces him to his sons, uh, the people in the diner. And if you pay attention to the character of Charlie, who is played by Kevin Costner, um, I think that he begins to see that, okay, it's a town. We kind of tend to stay away from towns. But this one... It's not what he typically imagines townspeople to be. 
that I think as much as Sue kind of helps him say, okay, because he, he brings up later when, when he asks his boss, you know, boss, what are you going to do? He's like, well, I'm thinking about putting down roots. What do you think? He's like, well, I think that's something that you're always telling me and uh, me and, and Button that we ought to do is get ourselves settled. You never talked about it yourself. Yeah, and he definitely has a transformation. He came to a point of, of catharsis of being able to deal with the fact of his, his past and really showing himself to boss, um, saying, this is what I've done. This is who I am. And now that that's out in the open, you can see why, you know, I can do this thing. I can put down, um, and I can't even remember the rancher's name. I can put down this, this bad man, but I can't live in this town because if I stay here, I'll destroy it. And he's, he's absolutely right about that. And it's, his transformation is coming to the point of being able to, to open up and show that, that vulnerability. Um, but he is still the man of violence. And I just thought that we saw the Hollywood ending coming where, okay, I'm going to leave and I'm not going to say goodbye to anybody. And then he comes back and like, Oh gosh, we spoiled this. And they didn't quite spoil it because he's like, okay, I love you. I want to marry you, even though I've only known you for three hours, <laughs> but I'm still leaving. And I just thought that it would have been more satisfying to me personally, if she had gone out with him. Or if we had the Hayao Miyazaki ending, like, yes, I love you, but this just can't be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's how, that's how most Westerns go. Uh, if you watch uh, the classics of the 60s and 70s, you know, the end of the movie, you've got that little kid shouting, Shane! But Shane's not going to turn around. Dude, you bring up that movie again, I will shoot you through this microphone. I'm just going to put that out there right now. The movie is so I annoying. I have no idea what's going on. Anyway, here, yeah, okay. that is something that has been on my mind: the romance between Charlie and Sue. I, t I spend quite a bit of time analyzing this. I'm like, this is rushed. Is this rushed? This feels rushed. How many days have they been there? How many days between when he first lays eyes on her, carrying in Moe's to get looked at by the doctor, and saying, "I'm in love with you, Sue. Will you marry me? Can I kiss you?" I did appreciate that, though. Of all the things for this film to not rush, that's the thing that they that they have to hit the gas on. Like, this film rushes nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely uh, wanted some more, some more breathing room for that particular subplot. It's a very short time that these two have spent around each other, and a good portion of that was spent, one of them destroying the other one's tableware. And the more I thought about it, I can see the direction that they were trying to go, whether it's successful or not, or whatever someone's opinion of it is. And these two people, they've seen a lot of life, a lot of ups and a whole lot of downs, a lot of spent hopes and dreams. And he has talked at length about some of the bad things that he's done. He's told it to Boss Spearman, and he's told Sue. He's like, I've killed people. People are going to die today. And I'm going to kill them. I took that when he told her that he's not trying to scare her. He's just being 100% honest with her. And she says, I'm not a girl anymore, Charlie. I'm a man now. <laughs> I was waiting for love to come. It never did. And I've just been left waiting a long time. So you've got these two people who are, they're not the end of their life, but they're kind of at the top of the slope looking down. And 
they have just realized there is some measure of happiness and comfort and love that can be found in each other's company. It's not love at first sight, however much Charlie says, like, you know, I've loved you since the moment I laid eyes on you. But it's one that I found that I was okay with. I did find it interesting that all of a sudden at the end, Charlie does start to wax poetic. I'm going to give you a thousand kisses before I'm done. I'm like, dude, where'd that come from? <laughs> it's got a lot of time to read out there on the trail. Apparently. Um, but it didn't bother me as much as other people who have talked about it online. It was a cute little love story. Some people might think that it was shoehorned in. I was fine with it. I also really like Annette Benning, and I thought she played the part of Sue very well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Honestly, I might have told her the same thing. <laughs> what I saw in this film is two people who are just saying, look, with the course I'm on in my life, I am going to destroy myself. And the person I want to destroy myself <laughs> with is you. That's dark, dude. <laughs> I think. Yeah. I, no, seriously, like what honor? Like, I really do not get what she sees in him. Okay, granted. I mean, we, we have Kevin Costner's rugged handsomeness. That's, I guess, a draw. Speaking of draw, he drew on you when he was startled from his sleep. He spent a good 10 seconds decided whether or not to alter your very pretty face with some lead. How is that the start of romance? Yeah, like, I get. Don't judge her hey, for what she's into. Ladies do like a bad boy. <laughs> I guess. I guess. I guess <laughs> some people don't feel... Besides, Joy's going to get mad at you. I mean, when we first started dating, she pointed a gun at me so many times. <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah. look, when I first yeah. met Joy, she stabbed me. So, okay, I get that. We should have some context here for like, wait, wait, he pointed a gun at her. For those who have not seen the movie, dealt with some, some gunmen who had masks over their faces, white masks with holes poked up for the eyes, very spooky. He's dreaming that one of them is in the room pointing a gun at him. And then when he's startled awake, he has a freakout moment. He's definitely got some PTSD going on. Yeah. It's not just that Annette Benning walks in the room and is like, holy crap, Annette Benning and points a gun at her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that that dream sequence felt very real to me. Like, I don't, I don't have PTSD. But I've been asleep when there is a fight or flight scenario happening around me. And I've, I've woken up. With, you know, with klaxons blaring, like confused in a strange environment. And I had three people around me and I, I didn't exactly come up swinging, but I came up on my feet, crouched, hands balled into fists, looking at three people. You know, these were my college friends. And it took me several seconds to figure out that none of these people were people who were going to take a swing at me. Or that I should take a swing at them. Like just, mm -hmm. that was, you know, strange place, fire alarm went off. And I was apparently in a very <laughs> deep sleep and they're trying to figure out how to wake me up. <laughs> it was like, how is this not doing the job? But then, you know, that spark hits and then it's just dumping a whole mess of panic. So when I see him waking up from his, his not only the PTSD that he has, but he's also been told in no uncertain terms we're going to kill you and he's dreaming that one of those guys is in the house that 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 10 seconds of mm -hmm. confusion felt very real even without 
you know, the haunted past that he has. He talks a lot about how all of this that they're going through right now is bringing up a lot of bad memories. In fact, before he and Spearman head back to the town to look for their friend, the very thought of the possibility of that violence happening again is enough to make him physically sick. It's not something that he wants to do or revisit. And now that it's right at the doorstep, it's causing him some problems. Brian, you nailed it on the head. He's got some PTSD. Mm-hmm. I think there's more than just PTSD in this because he's he's a complicated figure. He was in the war and he was going in behind enemy lines and making trouble. And sometimes he they shifted from – and it, it's interesting. They never said what side in the Civil War he was on. From the description, I would assume that it was Confederate mm-hmm. because they were the ones who had the, the raiding bands. Okay. That's what I assumed. But I, I do also kind of like the fact that they just dropped it in there mm-hmm. and, you know, get behind enemy lines and make some trouble. And then, you know, they kind of blurred who was combatant and non-combatant. And it seemed like they mm-hmm. were just good at what they were doing and just did it to whomever. So so he's killed some folk. And when it comes time to say, look, these people who are trying to scare off or kill off the free rangers – there's a group of people that are just there to do nothing more, do nothing more. No, it's a significant thing, but to make the cattle stampede. And Charlie was ready to put down every one of them, whether or not they were prepared to kill him or able to kill him on the spot. And it would be the pragmatic thing to do. I mean, in fact, mm-hmm. I'm pretty darn sure that he killed all of those people later on in the film. <laughs> but mm-hmm. boss was like, no, this is not the way. And is like, boss this is really the way it's gonna go like that charlie this isn't the way to do things and he listens like he's got the conscience so i i i think that that pragmatism that he brings it about lethality that he brings into these scenarios also makes it more interesting than just well he doesn't Mm want to kill people i mean he's definitely prepared to if he thinks it's easier but he also doesn't do it wantonly We see that same situation come up again towards the end of the climactic battle. He sees one of the gentlemen they fought who has been wounded and is trying to crawl away. He's in the middle of reloading his gun. He looks to boss. I'll be right back. He's like, Charlie, no, this ain't justice. If you shoot him, that's that's vengeance. His response, kind of splitting hairs there, boss. I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah, I'm not looking over my shoulder the rest of my life. And the guy on the ground is like, sir, I, I heard you. Uh, I, I'm not going to come after you. I promise. And he looks and goes, pulls the hammer back on his gun. I know. I reckon you aren't. And boss Spearman steps in front of him, said, this isn't the right way. You know, we're not executioners. And there's a moment you think that Charlie just might shoot his friend. His blood is up. He's in that mode. He's back in that place that he didn't want to go to be told, don't kill the enemy. The person who just a few minutes ago was trying to kill you, that's hard. That's very hard for him. And he's able to push it down. He's able to step away. Once again, Boss Spearman knows exactly what he's done. The guy on the ground says, sir, thank you so much. Like, I didn't do it for you. You best make peace with your bad deeds. I mean, this is 1880. That's that's a lot of holes. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's interesting in this particular case, one other bit of... uh... Charlie's backstory is that he has been 
the hired gunman for one of these ranchers in the past. He's been the same guy that he's pointing the gun at. And so really uh, Spearman's uh, comments to him are not only about uh, this isn't the right way to do things, but, you know, this was you in the dirt or this might've been you in the dirt 10 years ago before we started traveling together. He needs to be able to get to that place where he can, he can swap positions with the guy and say, okay, well, if I were here, if I were the one with the gun on me, would I really think it was justified for somebody to, to pull the trigger on me? And maybe, you know, in the way that he thinks about it, he would have been the kind to chase somebody down later and, and get the vengeance. I mean, obviously he's, Mm -hmm. he's thinking that way now. So it's, it is a really, really complex. So it, it is a really, really complex bit of character to be explored there. We've talked a lot about violence in these last few minutes, but one thing I found interesting was this movie was kind of a slow progression, escalation to violence. We've talked a lot about how slow this movie has gone, and frankly, I kind of enjoyed the slow pace of it. I thought the movie was actually very well paced. We get a lot of time at the beginning to just learn about these characters, uh, Boss Spearman, Charlie, Button, and Mose. who I like your notes. Mose, he's there to get shot and die. Which I thought one gripe was I thought that that was a waste. I I liked the character and that he's this huge guy that can take on three to five guys with absolutely no problem. He's put down very quickly, but I thought that also did highlight the fact that this is the West in the 1880s. Life was cheap there and violence was quick. Yeah. The thing that really bothered me about the treatment of Moe's was that there was so much more pathos around the dog's death than his. Yeah. Someone actually addressed that as why Kevin Costner, where there was that moment while he was looking at his dog and uh, someone made the note that that part more than the others was hard for Kevin Costner because of how much of a dog lover he is. (laughs) I guess that makes sense. Yeah. And how much he just absolutely hates people. (laughs) Like I didn't know, like, I don't know enough about Kevin Costner. <laughs> like it, yeah. it certainly would work for Charlie's character. Charlie, I would think. Yeah. I don't know about Costner himself, but Charlie, yeah, that does make sense now that you like, say it. <laughs> but Costner does love dogs and he does he like I think he rescues a dog on every set, something to that effect. <laughs> I mean, I I don't know if that's true, but he He does. Yeah, he, um, he but he as does, I was saying he does do a lot for dog rescue. One reason why I did love this movie, I'm glad that we did it, was because of how much I loved the interplay and the chemistry between Boss Spearman and Charlie. I mean, Robert Duvall and Kevin Costner play so well together. Mm -hmm. Apparently, there was quite a bit of ad-lib lines, especially from Duvall's part. And they just played so well off each other. I think Duvall was the one who doesn't like to deliver the same line twice, Hmm. even in rehearsals. I'll change it every time. I would totally buy that. I think that's him. I don't remember for sure. You know, it's interesting that you said that you enjoyed the slow pacing. I I had a hard time with the pacing of this film. Uh, I When I started watching it, and like a lot of my notes are, why did they go here? Why are they getting sarsaparilla? Why are they going to the saloon? They came to town to shoot a dude. There is dude. You have gun. <laughs> He has body. You could, you could, you could make this happen, but 
you know, it occurred to me, you know, at some point, like, this is only going to make sense if he gets the town people to realize that he isn't just some free ranger. Uh, and he he gets the people to understand that Baxter is just a deplorable human being who is using them and the terror of the sheriff to just run ramshot over the entire town and uses the people to turn the tide. Like, that's the only way that any of this is ever going to make sense. And in the next scene, you kind of get to see that this is happening, but then the shootout happens and then the entire rest of the film just makes sense. With the exception of the love relationship, which is never going to make sense to me. Don't try to talk me out of it. (laughs) I was going to mention at that point, that's one of those genre tropes that uh, I was alluding to before. And that, and I think we're going to see this when we watch the magnificent seven, because it's the same thing where mobilizing the town to defend themselves more than, I mean, these three guys aren't going to go up against the entire ranchers group of gun hands. They try to, but they know that the real power that they've got is that they're going to get this town behind them. And I think maybe Spearman understands that a little bit more than Charlie does because Charlie wants to go straight for the the sheriff. And so that's one of those things where because you didn't recognize that we've got to rally the town because you haven't watched a lot of Westerns. Um, that may have been why you were wondering, well, why are they going into the Why are they going to the general store? Why don't they just cut to the chase? This movie could be 60 minutes long. Right. <laughs> I mean, at, at that point, like this, at least from the town's perspective to, to be a very different kind of film. I mean, mm-hmm. then Baxter wins mm-hmm. because Baxter believes all these free ranchers who are legally eating grass out on these lands Um, which he owns and does not like because it's my grass. I don't care how much of it I have and how little of it you have. It's mine. And what's mine is mine is mine. And you are your problem. And if you're making your cattle's needs my problem, then you are the problem. And you need to be taken care of, you greedy free rangers. And if none of these events happen inside of the town, they, Mm -hmm. they kill... They kill the dog. They kill Moe's. They they bust up Button really bad. They would have killed Button. They would have killed everybody and stampeded the cattle. Um, and then all of a sudden, these free ranchers come into town. There's a fight. Sheriff says that it's Moe's fault, so it's Moe's fault. And then a couple days later, these these terrible bandits come in and shoot the sheriff. Well, yeah, free rangers are a problem if that's what you do, if that's if that's mm-hmm. what this is about. So it it only works if the narrative is the people see that, oh no, these free rangers were, were done an injustice and there is no justice to be done. I never viewed it that that was something that Spearman was trying to do. Now, he did have a couple of good speeches here and there. And for someone who doesn't protest to like people very much, he is very good at delivering speeches. <laughs> I viewed it that... Is something that they were lucky that happened. Spearman and Charlie, they're ready to face Baxter and his men by themselves. They were ready for it. I mean, they even bought chocolate and cigars to give themselves a little send off. But it's talked about how, you know, you said, Mike, why don't they just go kill man, be done with it? 
uh, like I said earlier, there is a progression of violence. At first, we violence is inferred. We see it off camera. Bose has been beaten up and put in jail. They show up, they get him home. Then we see the progression of violence that the gunmen who are going to stampede the herd are encountered. Uh, they're beaten up, but then we see that Mose is shot, Button has been shot and wounded, and then it escalates further from there. They've taken him to the doctor, they're in town, they find out that uh, the bar of which they were just hoping to get a, a whiskey is owned by Baxter. And we're like over an hour, hour and a half into the movie, and we, for a Western, we finally get our first gunshot. And it isn't even that anyone is shot, it's that the window is shot out in the saloon which I appreciated how loud they made that sound because a double barrel shotgun being shot indoors is going to be deafening. And from there, violence escalates further to the final shootout at the end. These people who Spearman has been talking to, finding out about their lives and, uh, and people just introducing them. One thing I always wondered that would some of these people have been so friendly to Spearman and Charlie had they not saved the dog? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. But sometimes all it takes is a simple act of kindness to make people open up. And I do love the fact that the save the cat moment in this film was a dog. <laughs> so he talks with the gentleman who runs the shipping company, meets the sons, gets to know the people who work at the diner a little bit, and more. Gives a rousing speech in a diner. And at first I thought we were going to have a shootout in a little diner between Spearman, Charlie, and the sheriff. I'm like, well, for the first time, a, a gunfight isn't going to happen in a bar or a saloon. It's <laughs> it's going to happen at the local Applebee's. <laughs> Showdown at the, yeah. the Applebee's Corral. That's fantastic. <laughs> but we get Spearman saying, you've got a warrant out on us. We've got a warrant out on you. One that we wrote ourselves for hurting us. And all we're trying to do is just, just live our lives. I don't think Spearman had the plan of getting the town on his side. I think his plan was wanting to shoot up Baxter and hopefully maybe live the next day. And yeah. all of them were very, very lucky that the town did end up coming up on their side because this is a town. These are normal folk. Much as we talk about how the West was violent and one of my favorite podcasts is Legends of the West. And there was a lot of violence done. But for all these violent stories we hear, all of these gunmen and killers and great sheriffs and lawmen, there was also millions and millions of people who were out there just trying to live their lives. And these are the people who we meet of this little town. They're just trying to build new homes. Their houses are falling down in the rain. They're just trying to live as best they can, especially under the thumb of someone like Baxter. It's implied. It's never said that he's menacing us and that he's horrible, but... It's inferred. There's definitely some uh, strong subtext when that woman was talking about the rain is going to wash out the, uh, rinse out the town. It's like, yes. oh, well, I know who she's talking about. <laughs> Clean as a baby's bottom. Baxter and his men are not someone anyone wants to mess with. They don't want to be under his thumb, but these are people who don't know how to affect that change. It takes these two strangers who, one, are, they're used, not used to violence, but they are experienced with it triply so in Charlie's case, they don't really have a stake in the game. Their stake is they're trying to protect their herd and themselves, and that's it. And Baxter has put them up against a wall. Mm -hmm. As Spearman said, he means to have this herd or scatter it to the wind, and they know that's only going to happen over their dead bodies. And also, 
yeah, when the when the gunfight happens, we'll talk about the gunfight here in a few. Baxter, he's already shot in the arm, and then he proceeds to shoot himself in the foot by shooting off his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> because he's already lost eight men to Charlie and Boss Spearman. And so he gets these other four who have been chloroformed out of their mind in the jail cell, puts guns in their hands and shoves them out. Now the townsfolk have come out with their own guns. You ladies better take charge of your men if you don't want to see your houses destroyed and your children put out in the cold. And then he points to the gentleman with the two sons whose dog they saved. He says, except for you, you and your sons are already dead. Yeah, I think it, it was made pretty clear that this guy is garbage. And the second he does that, when I saw him, I'm like, oh, you just really signed your own death warrant. Mm -hmm. Because this is a man who's good. He's respected in the town. And now it's not just vague threats anymore. Now it's become personal. You just put this entire town against you. But that is my personal take on it. If I sound like I'm an apologist for this movie, it's because I am. I... <laughs> I saw this in theaters back in 2003. I loved it so much. I bought the DVD with the extra DVD commentary and all the other stuff. I've got a soft spot for a good Western, and this one just spoke to me. I think it's either is my top or one of my top three favorite Westerns of all time. So will I defend it? Yeah, I will. <laughs> but th this is all a James thing. This is all just my personal thoughts and feelings and also why I love it so much. So we've talked an awful lot about why we chose this movie, and a lot of the things we've talked about were in the subject of film craft. Who knows if they actually were film craft? <laughs> I did actually have a couple of film craft notes I wanted to include. Yeah, um, let's, hit the, let's go back up to the top and start this all over again. Okay. <laughs> I think one of the best scenes in the movie, and it's also why our characters lived as long as they did, was the rainfall and the flood that happened to the town about midway through the movie. You're like, why aren't they killed yet? Why are they still living? Why are they able to go from cafe back to the doctor's house, to the saloon, back to the doctor's house? It's raining cats and dogs, and the dogs are floating away. <laughs> the dogs are, are playing fish real well. Yeah. I was always curious, like, that's a lot of water they're dumping on this town. To create the flood, I found the crew pumped 32 gallons of water down the street every minute. They actually had a massive holding tank at the bottom, which recycled the water back up to the top through underground pipes. Oh, they learned a few things from Waterworld. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How not to make a movie. <laughs> but in addition to that cool feature, I thought aesthetically, this was one of the best looking and most realistic Westerns I've ever seen. Uh, when we talk about those classic Westerns, so many of them seem to take place in very arid environments, deserts. It's like Nevada was giving everyone a credit to come film movies there or something. Well, it's because uh, Monument Valley is very convenient to Los Angeles and uh, you always have sun there. Gotcha. So it was cheap. You're never going to have to worry about getting rained out of your set and everybody could stay living at home. They didn't have to get hotels. It doesn't surprise me in the least that it comes down to money. Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> this one, what I loved from the get-go was that the movie starts and we see these beautiful hills and mountains and green, green everywhere. A very lush environment that they're herding these cows through. It was filmed in Canada, but it's meant to take place in 19th century Montana. And it, it felt very right for that place. Everything from the clothes that they wore – 
the look of the town, the feel of it, even the diner, the interior of the saloon, the interior of the doctor's house just had this feeling of rightness, of realness to it that really was able, you're able to immerse yourself into. And Brian, I'm going to ask you, Mike, you were there for a while too. When was the last time either of you two went to Cowtown back in oh Wichita? Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was a thing. Um, yeah, it's it's been a hot minute. Um, <laughs> Because I've been, um, yeah, I've been out of Kansas a while. It's been a while, but I did go to uh, Old Town San Diego just last summer, which is very similar. Oh, very cool. We were actually there just this last fall. A good friend of mine, been in the SCA with him, I've known him for years. His name is Chris. He and his wife were there at Cowtown. There was a Western reenactment competition going on at Cowtown. And so uh, they were down from, in Wichita from Kansas City. So we decided to go. We'd visit Joy's mom and see them. And he had a whole tent out and reenactment stuff for a post-Civil War U.S. Army soldier. And they had really grown Cowtown up from the time than when we went as school children, Brian. Uh, it's more than just like the schoolhouse, the saloon, the general store, and a dirt road. And that's it, basically. They've got four full streets in a square. They actually have several 19th century buildings, which were in other towns in Kansas, were meticulously taken down and then reassembled on this property. And a lot of relics, a lot of shops, a lot of uh, craftsmen are there as well. They've, they've done it up nice, and I really enjoy it, uh, taking the kids there. But having been inside some houses that were built in the era, seeing the interiors of these buildings in the movie, whoever whose job it was to capture the look and feel, they did their job right. Mm -hmm. It helps also that uh, Western construction is, again, cheap. So it's something that they can <laughs> throw up very easily. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One of the things that I know this is so little, I'm just going to drop it in here, that in the very final, final, final shootout, where they're like four feet away from each other and both unloading and hardly hitting anything, <laughs> no, it's. I know that a lot of people might cry foul. The only thing I will cry foul about is pretty sure Charlie had 14 shots from that six shooter before. But anyway, we're going to move on. Yeah, I, I heard him count nine when he was uh, banning the hammer. I, I want to talk about that. It's somewhere between nine and 14 shots because he shoots the hired killer first. Mm -hmm. And then he shoots another guy. Mm -hmm. Then he shoots another one. Mm -hmm. And then he shoots one guy yep. and then starts fanning it. Boom, 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 boom. Yep. That was a stylistic choice on Kevin Costner's part. Oh, yeah. Because he talked <laughs> in an interview about how he always wanted to be in a Western where he fans the gun and shoots it for an absolute absurd amount of times. <laughs> Success. Yes, he did that on purpose. He wanted to have that bit of fun. Look, that's not a thing that you do on accident. That is a revolver. How did they even do the shot? They, they couldn't do it practically with an actual revolver. They had to either build a prop. And do you know what? That's not even what I'm talking about. Why am I talking about this? <laughs> did you want to talk about the full second between the time you fired the gun and the bullet hit something? Well, that, okay. I, I thought that the slow motion was unnecessary, but. That was the only time, though, in the entire movie that you see that they used slow motion. Right. I'm not talking about the slow motion. I'm talking about. Everything is running at speed. He pulls the trigger, bang goes the gun, and it takes like a half a second to a full second before there's an impact without even a cut. It's like, 
wow, those are really, really slow, slow bullets. bullets. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I feel they, yeah. they're all shooting 45 calibers, and sometimes those can take a minute. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the funny thing is when we have these guys unloading their weapons at each other at point blank range, you might say, okay, no, that's, that's just cheap. That's just silly. Actually, I had read it in a historical account where I kid you not, some low down, dirty, some so-and-so decided to sneak up on the sheriff while he was in his private office and by doing his private business. And by private office, I mean the outhouse. And so the door pops open. Both men completely unload. And I don't know if you know how, you know, th this isn't one of those huge long hallway outhouses because that's not how they made them in the 1800s, but neither men hit anything mm -hmm. and they both had to reload before the chase could continue. That has to be a Wyatt Earp story. I will have to look up where that came from. I've he's, heard he's the very same thing. Yeah. Shot at a lot and never getting hit. I suppose that when you are nervous as all get out trying to sneak up on the sheriff at point blank range and counting on surprise to be the only thing that saves you, you know, that <laughs> fine motor control and nerves, they don't play nicely with each other. Nope. No. As I said before, these guys were shooting, most of the handguns in that era were shooting a 45 caliber round. That's a beast to fire. Now, true, those early firearms were heavier than the more modern ones we have today and could handle the recoil a little better, especially anything made by Colt. But still, shooting one of those one-handed, accuracy isn't really the name of the game, unless it's something that you're doing a lot of. It's not like you're going to hit the person in front of you. It's like, oh, did you hit the barn 30 feet behind them? I did. Man, you're a marksman. <laughs> I, don't know what you, I don't know what you're talking about. I've seen Buster Scruggs. I think I know the way the Old West works. <laughs> We are really far afield at this point. Yeah. Does anybody have anything to say about open range? Because we are not <laughs> reviewing Buster's Rocks. We have talked a little bit about the gunfight at the end, and that's one I want to talk just a minute more about because, once again, I love this gunfight. It's one of my absolute favorites of any gunfight of any Western movie, of any movie at all, really, anything modern or Western. I just, I love it. The first shot that we see, Baxter's men all lined up, and there's the killer. There's the most deadly man in the middle, smiling. He's cocky. This here's the gun hand. And they even talk him up. Others in Baxter's gang have said, you know, he can shoot with either hand. Stearman asks Charlie if he's heard of him, and even Charlie confirms he's a killer. Charlie starts walking up to the line of men and asks him, are you the one who killed my friend? Get some talking. And as soon as the guy finishes talking, you see how cocky he is. Charlie's gun is already out of his sheath and boom, shoots him right between the eyes. That's a very fine hat. <laughs> yes, that is exactly what I was thinking. I about stood up and applauded. Wow, that's the smartest move I've ever seen anyone do in a movie gunfight. Take out the deadliest killer first and do it when you've got him talking. Rather than waiting for the dramatic moment when everybody else is down, you save this guy for last. Yeah, take him out first, and as they talk about in the uh, the Incredibles, do it while he's monologuing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I like about this gunfight an awful lot was the way that the tactical situation evolved, and you could see mm -hmm. everybody thinking about how we have to adjust our tactics based on what's happened. Mm -hmm. And 
it was very clear and very well telegraphed, which you don't often see in these kinds of gunfights. I think a lot of times uh, they get to that point in the script and they start playing it by ear. <laughs> um, but this one was, it was very clear what was happening. Mm-hmm. And I, I really appreciated that a lot. I found it interesting that they shot most of the gunfight in a very wide angle. Not so much from a distance, but you can see so much. Not a lot of like close in focus. Mm-hmm. It kind of gave you the idea of the range and scope of the fight itself. And it really showed off the technical skill of the filmmakers. Yes, it did. Because the reason that you go in for those tight shots is so you don't have to worry about geography. But yeah, but this gunfight had one of the most realistic feels to it as well. Except for the part where one guy gets shot and is like knocked back five feet. Yeah, there um, were a couple of those. Yeah, there were a couple of them. Like, t- taking a little dramatic license with that. But still, it was a cool effect. You know, just watch the quick and the dead first, and then everything else is a masterpiece. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I could go on and on more about the gunfight, but... Uh, we've already talked about this movie for quite a while and we've kind of jumped all around the place. Let's take a few minutes and we talk about the characters themselves. We've talked about Moe's, how he was in it to die. We've talked about Button. Um, although one thing oh, I did gosh. enjoy about Button... Button just annoyed the crap out of me. <laughs> I do like that we do see the actor grow up, though. I mean, it's played by Diego Luna. Yeah. Who goes on to become Cash and Andor, of all people. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, maybe I should watch Andor to see what becomes of Button. <laughs> <laughs> He's a lot less obnoxious, but not entirely. Yeah. I want to talk about Boss Spearman just for a moment. I cannot express how much I love Robert Duvall in a Western. I mean, anybody who can deliver cowboy philosophy about Swiss chocolate and it actually play well has to be commended. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Apparently, he was Kevin Costner's only choice for the role. And that if he couldn't get him, Costner was like, I might as well not even make the movie. Yeah, I heard that. One of my favorite bits is when, after a storm at the beginning, where we see the Free Rangers out in the prairie and a big storm comes and they have to tent down. They have no idea where the cows are and even the horses break away from their picket line. They get one and while they're trying to get the wagon out of the mud, here comes Spearman riding a horse with all the rest of their horses in front of him. And Moe smiles and goes, oh, boss, sure can cowboy, can he? I liked how in those little moments, without having to do really any exposition, you are treated to the experience of Boss Spearman uh, in this situation, how good of a cowboy he is, and also the respect that uh, his guys have for him. A really character-building moment. I don't have anything to add to that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm good. And we've talked a bit about Sue. Who is not Anne. <laughs> and the last thing I'll say about Denton Baxter, Sir Michael Gambon, everyone. Okay, yeah, he you, he delivered. Doing what he does best, just walking in and owning every other scene he's in. So are there any other thoughts that we had on uh, Open Range? I'm good. I've spoken my piece. Yeah. I talked about this off podcast. Was this both of your guys' first time viewing this movie? Yes. Yes. We've said likes, we've said dislikes, but overall, simply, Mike, how did you like it? I think that I would give this uh, five out of six shooters. <laughs> um, I I thought that the, that the slow build on the plot really was, I mean, it was a drag for me at the beginning, but it's, it, I thought that really how it all tied up 
really brought it all home. So I, I liked it. What about you, Brian? I think this is going to be one of those movies that I'll put on when I just want something going, making some noise and, you know, I can turn to it and enjoy it while it's going on or, you know, sick day movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll, I'll almost certainly watch it again. And I, I really did enjoy it quite a lot. I really enjoyed the little moments of humor that they interspersed throughout this movie. Felt very real. None of it felt forced or contrived. And I loved the pinpoint of humor that we got right before the big battle. They're behind <laughs> their wagon, waiting for Baxter and his men to come down the street. Charlie turns to Spear and goes, all right, now I'm not going to my maker without knowing your name. My name's not Wade. It's, it's Postal Wade. Charles Postal Wade. What is your first name? Sure as heck ain't boss. <laughs> Here's grizzled, wonderful Robert Duvall. It's Blue Bonnet. And I was sure that he was going to say that was his last name. Yeah. And I love how Charlie takes it. He's like, Charlie has no idea what to say. This has blown his mind. And the only thing he can say is, no middle name? No, just, just Blue Bonnet Spear. And don't you tell no one. And he, you see Spearman raise his arm. They're about ready to get into a gunfight for their lives, but he's about ready to deck Charlie. He's like, I mean it. Give me your word. You don't tell no one. What a great way for a movie to end that the bad guys come down the street. There's no heroes. And there's just sound of a fist fight behind a wagon. I feel like I've really just missed the opportunity to name my youngest boss. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That'd have been great on a birth certificate. <laughs> Middle name, Blue Bonnet. <laughs> boss, Blue Bonnet. Or Blue Bonnet Boss. Then she could open up a... Uh, flower shop. Flower shop, yeah. yeah. I just trademarked it while you guys were talking. Fantastic. <laughs> Blue Bonnet Boss. It's got the domain name. Now you can buy Blue Bonnet Boss t-shirts at the Pansanero store from Geek at Arms. <laughs> well, if that is it for uh, Open Range, I think that will take us to our Zombie Apocalypse Plan of the Week. Mike... How are we staving off the undead this time? Well, obviously, we are in a highly competitive environment with scarce resources. And um, what you have to do is get people on your side with cowboy philosophy and Swiss chocolate. And they'll help you shoot up all them zombies in very wide angle. I like it. Sounds like a plan. And on that bittersweet <laughs> moment, that will wrap it up for this episode. Thank you all for listening in. Make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash geekatarms. And Mike, what is our Twitter? We are ArmsGeek on Twitter. Give us a like, subscribe, leave us a review. It really does help the podcast. And as always, from Brian, Mike, and James, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. I have no idea where we were in this outline now. Okay. <laughs> Where were we in this outline? <laughs> this is Geek at Arms, Brian. <laughs>